Good morning, Sean and Marilee. Can you hear me? I have to make you co-hosts. All right. Should be able to speak now. Hello. Welcome. Welcome. So happy to see you both. Hello. Can can you hear me now? Yes, absolutely. Victory. Hello. 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 I'm really excited about this. Yeah, same. It's the first time I'm doing one of these. I don't know if you guys have any experience, but see how it goes. I used to I used to do use Twitter Spaces when I first came out quite often, and it was it was fun, but it was a little bit like the Wild West. It didn't really work every time, so I'm mm. hopeful they worked out all those issues. Yeah, let's let's see. I just tweeted I out the, some of the perfect. Some of the usability is still a bit funky, but um, but I think they should be better now. All right, we're waiting for Ashita, and then we're going to kick it off. There's Ashita. Let's invite you. And you know what? If something does go wrong, we'll just turn into performance art. It'll be like a really meta art piece here. It'll be great. Yep. So, Marilee, I had to... Unfortunately, there's only two co-hosts, so I'm going to invite you to speak, but I had to make Ashita a co-host, just so you know. All right, you should have the ability to speak. Perfect. Hello, Ashita, welcome. Ashita. It looks like she's still a listener. We're just waiting for her to accept the co-host power. Yep, yep. let's give give her a minute. Working out the kinks. Sean, are you, where are you located? I I live in Oakland, California. I like, for those of you in the Bay Area, I like to refer to Oakland as the less unaffordable side of the Bay. Uh, (laughs) And it's been, I've been here for about, wow, man, 15 years, I think. It's crazy. A quick short story about Oakland. When I first moved here, uh, all the venture investors I knew were like, listen, you can't start companies in Oakland. It's not possible. Nobody would, who would invest in a company in Oakland and who would work at a company in Oakland? And of course, now fast forward, everything's remote and hybrid and crazy and the world changes fast. So I guess it's a lesson not to listen to the people who think they're experts because the world changes faster than expertise can keep up. Interesting. Did you get snow recently? There was snow actually up in the Berkeley Hills, which I was I was actually up in the mountains skiing during the blizzards, but uh, the pictures were fairly epic. Wow. Wow. Crazy. Well, it's a beautiful day. I'm in Menlo Park, and beautiful day here today. Plenty of sun. Uh, it was crazy cold yesterday, so we'll see how it goes. Uh, all right, Ashita is joining us via phone. So let's hey, see. everyone. Um, there oh, you are. Yeah. Okay. I, I, so <laughs> I tried joining from Twitter, like the the desktop client. Uh, well, actually, the the web client, and it just like I didn't see the invitation thing <laughs> that we're talking about. So. 
here I am. I'm making technology work for me via my phone. So, hello, everyone. All right. Let's kick it off. Um, yes. Yeah. So, welcome, everybody. I'm very excited to, to have this conversation today. My name is Natalia, and I'm a, a longtime product leader with experience building AI at Meta, Salesforce at Microsoft. I'm currently exploring generative AI for creativity, so I'm, I'm looking to learn from the best minds in the industry. Um, this is why I'm, I'm interested in the conversation today. And um, Sean, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you're our featured speaker, and we're honored to have you here. Um, Ashida is my co-host. Um, so yeah, I, I thought I'd let you two introduce yourselves, and then we could, we could get into it. Of course, um, I, I can go very quickly. Um, so, hi, I'm Ashita. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm co-hosting the space with Natalia, as she mentioned. Uh, in my day job, I'm a founder of a generative AI-based startup called Fantunes.xyz, and we're focused on enabling creativity and self-expression through storytelling. Um, we allow people to create mini comics and um, they're sort of embedded within their fandom uh, or the worlds of um, uh, or universes that people are into. So we decided to start with Harry Potter because I'm a huge nerd um, and a huge Harry Potter fan, also fan fiction writer, which is a bit of an aside. Um, and Prior to this, uh, I've been a longtime product leader, um, worked with Natalia at eBay, um, also, um, you know, was, was at Twitter right, right before I decided to uh, head out on my own and start my, my you know, founding journey. Um, uh, when I'm not working on fan tunes, I'm uh, a tinkerer, an explorer, an artist, um, a writer, and just an overall sort of curious human. Um, so my interest is, I've always wanted to like learn from interesting people, you know, who are simpatico, like-hearted, like-minded. Um, this space is just evolving so quickly. And, um, you know, I also, similar to N Natalia, want to meet with the brightest minds and the sharpest people um, in the space and listen to their perspective, um, learn from them. So yeah, it's a little bit about me. Sean, kick it off. Yeah, well, first, thanks for having me here. This is a topic that I love to talk about. Um, I have been a founder and investor in startups for about 20 years. But on the side, behind the scenes, just like Batman, I had a secret identity as an artist that I've, I've been doing art. I've been an artist for going on most of my life, probably 35 years now. And I have always enjoyed it as and watched it since it started from the days that we used to do everything physically with pencils and papers. And then it became digital art. And now it's dominated by digital art. Uh, you can check out my portfolio. It's just artbyburns.com, B-Y-R-N-E-S. So Art by Burns or uh, here on Twitter, uh, Art by Burns as well. So I have a secret entity as an artist. Um, the whole world of digital art, not just generative AI art, but just digital art in general has fascinated me because it's the nexus of these two things that I have spent most of my life working on, technology. Um, I did get my graduate degree in, in machine learning. I've started AI companies, not in the art space, mostly in the data space. 
so the fact that they're coming together now is a really magical moment for me that that all my life interests are converging. So this is a conversation that's been 30 years in the making. Amazing. Very, very cool. Um, yeah. So I, I can I could sort of like, you know, I'd love to like riff on something Sean said. So Sean, um, you were talking about your secret identity as an artist. And uh, there's all this intersection with tech, which I think you know, all of us here have in common. Um, uh, and I, I wanted to, um, I, I just want to riff on like something that you said. So I'm kind of curious um, if we talk about your journey as an artist and we talk about, um, you know, the, your creative process and creativity, I'm kind of curious, like, how do you think about the role that, that AI-assisted art kind of plays when it comes to, you know, thinking about human creativity in general? Yeah, I think, well, so first let's put it into context. Because I think a lot of people have this idea of art or the artist as this magical genius standing in front of a blank canvas. And then we wave, we wave our pencils, we wave our, our, our brushes and paint and create these magical works of art. And that's literally never been the way it works. And so if you go back, as far as my art history education goes back to like the Renaissance, and you think about the great masters we celebrate as brilliant artists, long before computers were even something that people were thinking about, you know, one of my favorite artists was Rembrandt in the Renaissance. And you look at their pieces and it's amazing. And you start to imagine this, this artist standing at this canvas, creating these pieces. And what we know now is they actually had armies of assistants, that would do a lot of the background painting and detail painting for them. Many of them use mirrors to be able to project a scene onto the canvas so they could do the painting equivalent of tracing it. And so even back then, even in our romanticized versions of the Renaissance masters, they were using tools to create art. There was no magical person standing in front of a canvas creating art. And sure, that does that happen? Picasso did, you know, you know, introduced a lot of abstract art and that was how it works. But in general, Artists have always used shortcuts and tools to be able to get what they wanted. And they have also, by the way, borrowed from each other. And so, when, you know, if you go look at some of the great interviews with Picasso, he was very uh, clear that he was going to borrow and steal ideas from other painters and other artists. And so if you think about it that way, as we've seen over the last my lifetime, when I was a child, art was physical because we didn't have computers, at least computers that could do art yet. So we would do art on canvases, on paper. We would use pencils and ink and paint. And then as technology has arisen, it's given us a progressive series of tools. At first, it was the ability to scan art in and then edit it in you know, the first versions of Photoshop. Then eventually computers got good enough that we could start to create primitive art in the computer itself natively using various programs. And then we started to develop a whole new group of tools. So to everybody today is familiar with iPads and the pencil and the fact that you can draw on your iPad with the same fidelity you get on paper. But re the reality is even back 20, 15 years ago, there was an entire generation of tools that were just like that. So artists have been creating art using digital tools now for most of my adult life in various degrees of progressive skill. And so today, most of the art that you see in the world, and that's advertising art and other forms of art is created digitally. Most of it uses these tools. And by the way, it isn't just the tools. Uh oh, ah, there we go. Can y'all hear me? Yeah, okay. we can hear you. Sorry, sorry. Tw Twitter told me I dropped off. So the other thing that happens is that now that all this art's being treated digitally, um, 
you're like, well, okay, cool. So you're just the, what you did on the paper or the canvas is now just on the computer and it's not even true. So modern art programs have the ability to be able to create, add 3D models. You can actually just import 3D models. Most of them have libraries of them. Let's say I wanna, I wanna draw a picture of a, of a college campus. I can import a 3D model of a college campus. I can turn it around to the, the angle I want and I can essentially trace it. And you wouldn't know that and nobody would know that, but that's essentially how I might work and create something fast and digital. So all those tools are there now generative AI is just the next generation of tools. Now it's able to do the next stage of art creation for us. So I see it in the general historical context as the next step of a constant march forward of better and better tools that let artists create art more quickly with less effort to fulfill their vision. And now the, the real philosophical question is what happens when you get to the end of that progression? What happens when you get to the point where computers can create art without the human in the loop? And is that a good or a bad thing? And that's a philosophical question we could talk about here. But right now in 2023, we're at a point where we are in, in the next step of a constant progression of tools, enabling better art with less effort more frequently over time. That's amazing. I, I had no idea about all of that assistant work, artwork. I just didn't, didn't realize that's how it works. It was just, that's super, super interesting. Um, just I want to do a quick shout out to Marilee, uh, who who is also an AI product person, has been building AI forever, and Lauren, my former colleague, and then welcome everyone else. Uh, um, I think, so I think, one of the the directions we can we can uh, go from here is talk more about the creative process and, and Sean, this is where I would love to leverage your your creative side is like what what do you think is the role of AI in the creative process? I mean there's so much of this just changing so quickly, but are you using any of it um, and how do you see that and what do you think about the current landscape? So AI, I, I love AI. Like I said, I, I've been working in AI in various forms for years. And so I definitely try to use it. Um, I will answer that question in a way that's going to sound like I'm avoiding the question, but I'm not. Um, which is like, what, what exactly is the process of creating a piece of art, right? Art is different than engineering. It, engineering starts with a specific problem, for example, and you have to solve that problem by building something. Art is the opposite. There is no impetus for art. There's no driving force. It might be an emotion or a feeling but it's not like you have a problem to solve. So at some point you have some sort of nugget or seed that becomes the beginning of a piece uh, that you're going to create. So for me, I do a wide range of both uh, visual storytelling, art, graphic art, these sorts of things. And the seeds for me come from my life experience or stories that I want to tell or emotions I want to capture somehow. But for every artist, it's different how you capture those seeds. And then the, the art process is how do you turn that seed into something that captures as best you can, whatever that feeling or emotion that, that created that seed was. Um, the reason I say that I was, I was, I'm not avoiding the question is that, you know, historically that, that might mean we sit down and we, with a sketch pad and we just create dozens of sketches to try to see if we can capture something interesting. If you listen to musical artists, they have just hundreds of samples of little bits of songs or little melodies or little beats they've created. And then they assemble them into songs eventually. But essentially as an artist, you're trying to create these tidbits and, and you're looking for something that has is captured some of that energy you're looking for. 
And you could do that by sketching yourself, or you could do that by sitting down with a generative AI system and saying, listen, you know, I really want to create art that captures the feeling of sledding down the Berkeley Hills for the first time. And all of a sudden, you know, where I used to have to sit down myself and sketch things out or search for photos or look for reference, I can ask a system to help me search for that, that, that first foothold in creating a piece. And that's very powerful. I use that for that today. The problem is that, you know, often generative AI, it doesn't have a voice. And a lot of what makes art, in my opinion, meaningful is the emotions that it triggers. Like what, when I look at a piece of art, do I feel something, regardless of whether or not I feel what the artist wanted, like does it trigger something? And typically that comes from the voice, from the style. Like if I look at, Rembrandt was my favorite uh, Renaissance artist, but I look at the Night Watch, like I feel a lot, not just the picture and the composition, but I almost feel like what it was like to be there. And that feeling is something, and that voice is something that generative AI doesn't have yet. It doesn't have a consistent voice. It's conglomerating, you know, an enormous corpus of content. But essentially what you get as a result is the average of all those sources of content that are specific to your prompt, which means that instead of getting a voice, you kind of get like the average voice of everyone, which is not very distinctive, but as, as an artist, it's a good way to get started exploring ideas, figuring out where to start. And then the second place that it comes in, for me at least, is that every time you're creating something, it doesn't matter if it's an illustrator or painting, you run into a challenge or problem. Like the, it's not coming together correctly. It doesn't look right. You're not sure exactly how to fix it. And so the great innovation of digital art originally was that, hey, I can try a bunch of stuff and I don't have to like ruin my canvas. I can try a bunch of stuff. If it doesn't work, I throw it away. I just hit undo. And I have to tell you, as somebody who's very sloppy in my art creation process, that was innovation. It was fantastic for me. Now, AR art lets me do the same thing. Now I can explore an even wider variety of ideas. Not only can I create iterations on my own art, I can ask it to create iterations on my art for me to try to spur me past these issues and these, these, these things. So it's a little bit like those Renaissance artists I talked about before, having this army of assistant painters. Now everyone can have that with these AI systems that are going to help prompt and create ideas and help you explore ideas overall. Um, I have, there, there's a question we'll get to later about the ethics of these tools and, and how they were created and how much of what they create can you use without starting to, to get into very iffy areas of plagiarism and whatnot. But as an idea, both creation and iteration exploration tools, they're invaluable in the same way that being able to scan art in or create art on a digital surface and be able to hit undo or experiment has unlocked new things. In fact, if you look at the fidelity, forget about you know traditional fine art. If you look at the art in advertising, which is most of the art created in the world today is created for advertising. If you look at the quality of art out of a magazine in like the 80s versus today, it's night and day. And a lot of that is driven by the innovation of these tools. And that's true of any kind of art. If you're doing comic books or fine art or sculpture or whatever, the tools have gotten so good that you can explore these things in new ways. And that's what AI, generative AI art is for me in my process. Amazing, thank you. Such a good summary. Um, I'm kind of curious why, you know, there's there's very strong visceral reaction from some artists who just hate this <laughs> and feel very threatened. <laughs> and I'm curious, like, 
you know, like, where do you think that's coming from? Because from my point of view, somebody who makes AI and tools, I, I don't I don't understand why <clears throat> why they, they it's such a visceral reaction, why they find it so threatening. Um, so maybe maybe I'll let you answer yeah. the question. And then it looks like Marilee had a, a comment. So, OK, well, there, there, so there, yeah. in, in my and again, these are many my opinions. We're dealing with art. So art is is largely the realm of opinions. But there's three there's three places that that, that frustration and and pushback comes from. The first is very natural. You know, throughout human history, there's been resistance to automation because people have invested a lot of time and effort in learning skills. And they're looking at those skills becoming obsolete, losing their jobs, losing their livelihood. The best example that I, I, I know of is that ba- everybody loves bagels. Well, maybe not everybody, but lots of people love bagels. And bagels today are produced in bagel machines. And this is why we have bagels everywhere. We have bagel chains. But it used to be the case that bagel making was a very sought after artisan form where you had to apprentice in a bagel with a bagel maker for many years. Bagels were very expensive. They were very rare. And the bagel machine wiped out the entire world of artisan bagel making. Almost, it was a very radical shift. And that's true in, in manufacturing. It's true everywhere. And in art, it's now true in art. And these artists are afraid for their livelihoods, afraid for all this effort they've put in over dozens of years of learning to draw and to paint that someone else doesn't ha- can just show up and buy one of these tools or use one of these tools and create things and compete with them for their livelihood. So that's the first place that that fear comes from. It's a very natural reaction to technological progress and automation. The second place it comes from, I think is very valid, which is these tools are trained on enormous corpuses of content, but much of that content is copyrighted. And there is a very specific loophole in our current copyright law, which says that you can, there is a concept of copyright. You can't plagiarize. I can't just steal your stuff. But what I can do is I can take your copyrighted content. I can train a machine learning model on it and I can own that model. Or maybe I can. It's actually not entirely clear how it works. And so these artists are looking at, I publish my art in my portfolio. Like I said, free pitch for artbyburns.com. Um, and these systems will suck in all those images. They'll train ML models on them and somebody else can show up and all my hard work of creating those pieces is now at their disposal because these ML models can create things. In fact, if you go on to a lot of stable diffusion, you can create prompts where it also generates an artist's signature. And so you can actually see it stealing from artists because you can see the artist's signatures that it's creating. Now, that is a very real concern. I don't have any good answers. My personal belief is it will become an enormous area of copyright law, especially in the U.S., and I suspect the conclusion will be that you have to pay an artist to include their artwork in your machine learning models, that machine learning models will be considered derivative works of, of other things. But I don't know that. And until that's resolved, these artists have a very real concern that their art is being taken without their permission to train these models. And then the final, yeah. the, final, uh, the, the final place it comes from is that um, the reality is that art has always been a very difficult, it's a very difficult area. So I originally aspired to being an illustrator in my career. I now work in technology startups, obviously. But it's a very hard life because unlike engineering, if I'm going to solve an engineering problem, there is an explicitly correct answer to a problem. You can tell if your bridge will work or if your software works. In art, there is no objective correct answer. So artists have gone their entire lives subjected to the opinions of other people. 
And so you could create something that I think is amazing and everybody else can say, nah, that's, I don't like it. Or you could create something that you don't like, or you think is somebody else creates something you think is horrible and everybody else is like, ah, this is the best thing ever. And so to be an artist, you develop, have to develop a somewhat thick skin to deal with all that. Because if you can't deal with it, that thick skin, however, is, is almost universal. And so something that comes along and says, Hey, I can create AI art, that thick skin kicks in and you're like, no, you can't. Like that's just not any good because you've been, you've had to build defenses in your, in your personality to be able to deal with the constant criticisms, the constant arbitrary opinions of people. And it's, it does, it skews your, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing. This is what it takes to be an artist, but it also means that you are always going to be less willing to deal with these new things because you've had to survive in the art world and you've had to deal with arbitrary opinions and rejections. So anyway, those are all my opinions. Those are the three areas I think it comes from. And those are why I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. I think we're going to see a lot of discussion and debate. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, Yeah, as somebody who, you know, I I feel like as somebody who creates products, I've definitely felt some of that criticism. (laughs) It's it's hard to put things out there. Um, But no, I I get it. Um, I wanted to uh, see if Marilee, I think, was raising her hands. Um, Marilee, do you you know? A comment or question? Mm-hmm. Yes, and th- thank you so much, Nan. That was so interesting. Um, I wanted to just give your opinion on something I that's very related to what you just said, which is, I was playing around with um, Dali and I was creating some uh, contemporary art, and I was able to get a teddy bear that's sitting on an airplane drinking a. Um, but I was playing around with it, and I was looking at the terms and conditions, and they said hey, whatever you produce, you own and you can sell. Mm -hmm. I hadn't realized that I can sell anything I produce. And that's such an interesting topic and concept, right? Um, To your point about um, artists, I was reading an article where they said, look, you this is way more than inspiring someone to produce content that's inspired by us. This is content that would not exist if it wasn't for our art to train these models. So I'd love to hear your thoughts there on that specific part. And on the fact that people can sell what um, is being produced and generated by AI is just really interesting. It is interesting. In fact, there was a recently a court case, you may have seen that, where someone attempted to copyright an AI-generated comic book. And the, the end was the, the, the decision that was made was they could they could copyright the AI generated comic book in its entirety, but they could not copyright individual images from it, which is a very interesting decision. And part of this tension I mentioned in copyright law, where there's a lot of unclarity that's going to have to be resolved. So why is it that you could copyright an entire book, but not individual images from that book? In theory, everything should be novel. And the decision was that it was actually not clear that the individual images were novel. So the platforms themselves, Dali as an example, say that you own the images you create and they say that you can sell them, but it's really not up to open AI, really. It's up to the court systems and legal systems if someone sues by saying that, listen, this is derivative of what I did, then that the courts will figure that out for you. And we see this all the time with people sampling other music there's a question of how close does it have to be to the original for it to be plagiarism? And it turns out it, in our current world, it's not really a clear line. 
there are lots of lawsuits where it's like, you know, maybe you have a five second clip or an eight second clip or a 30 second clip. It's a constantly moving thing or this beat is the same or the melody is the same in music and in art the same way. Like if someone has a unique style, like, like Jeffrey Koons, right. He creates the, uh, the, the very famous sculptures that are essentially balloon animals that are rendered out of um, ceramics and they look like balloons. So if you create a balloon animal that looks like one of his, is that plagiarism? Is that an homage? Is that satire? Is it, is it something new that you didn't, you didn't know who he was? You accidentally created something that looks exactly like what he created. It's a very difficult problem to figure out. And I don't think there's a lot of clarity in it. So you're going to see it, it very much similar to, by the way, the early days of photography, right? We had all the same debates around photography because before photography, you had to paint an image and with photography, you could just take it. So if somebody, like if I wanted, somebody wanted to paint my picture, I'd have to sit there for a while. I knew they were painting my picture. If somebody took a photograph of me, who owns the photograph? Is it me? Because it's my face. Is it the photographer who took it? In our world, we have a third question, which is, is it the, the company that made the camera? In this case, OpenAI, did they own the image because their system generated it? I honestly, I don't know. Like I said, I have a suspicion of the way I think it will go, but I really don't know. It's going to be interesting to see how it develops in the coming years. Yeah, I think there's so much to be worked out. It, there's there's really a lack of clarity and um, around a lot of this <laughs> copyright and, and ownership and so on. Um, Sean, I we understand we, you only had allocated half an hour, so so maybe. Oh, I, um, I have another. I have know. another ten fifteen minutes if we want to keep going. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think the other thing I would love to touch on, and Lauren, I think this is something you're interested in, is is the ethical aspects of generative AI. Um, I mean, there's so many. <laughs> uh, you know, there's all of this stuff around generating images and, and artwork that's, you know, is it artwork or is it pornography? Is it... Um, I don't know. There, there's there's this, a whole set of things to think about, but that's the first one that comes to mind. Um, how do you think about the ethical aspects of, of this whole burgeoning technology? I, I think it's, it's complicated. I think that here's a great metaphor for you. Like the interesting thing about self-driving cars uh, for me is not the technology itself. It's moving quite fast. It's the unsettled question of if a self-driving car hits someone and kills them, whose fault is it? Right. We don't have any sort of provisions in our current legal systems to understand a robot being responsible for something. Somebody has to be responsible. Is it the person driving? Is it the people who made the car? Is it the people who wrote the software that was driving the car? And art has the same problem. If I'm on, you know, an auto, a generative AI site, and let's say it generates a piece of child pornography, right? Whose fault is that? Is that my fault for the prompt that I wrote that triggered it? Is it the fault of the company who actually created the generative AI system? Or is it the fault of people who put those images somewhere that the generative AI system could even absorb and add to its models to be able to create that in the first place? That is a very unsettled question about who is at the end of the day responsible for when these things go wrong. And we haven't figured it out yet across self-driving cars or generative AI. Um, there is of course the smaller ethical question mentioned before about is it ethical for a AI system to absorb the art of people whom did not give it permission, who have copyrights? And is a machine learning model a derivative work? And if so, do you have to, to pay these people to include their art in your systems? 
that's a, I think a smaller question because it's really that's really a business question. It's a question of who has economic ownership of of different sorts of rights to their their art. But that first question of blame and responsibility is a real big one. And I think that what we've seen with social media and a lot of tech innovations is that people will hide behind the ambiguity and do some fairly horrible things until we catch up and find a way to to take care of it. And that's dangerous. That's scary, right? So how is how do you police child pornography rings when people can just generate their own images and you can't follow people trading them around online, which is traditionally how they've been caught by the authorities? It's a very hard question. I don't have any good answers. I'm not an ethicist, but I'll tell you that I think a lot of people's unease when they see these things, well, like maybe not unease is the wrong word. People get excited about AI. They get excited about self-driving cars until you see a self-driving car driving down your street. And all of a sudden you get this weird feeling where you're not entirely sure what that means. And then all of a sudden what happens when you see a self-driving car almost hit someone, then you get even more uncomfortable. We don't yet keep our ethical system needs to get, updated to deal with how we think these things should be handled. But it's going to be interesting to find out. Amazing. Um, on that note, I do want to call on Lauren. Um, Lauren has been working on Responsible AI. Uh, she cares about it super deeply. And Lauren, I'm wondering if, if you have a couple um, points that you want to add to, to what Sean just mentioned, all about you know, um, the ethics for AI systems. How should we think about it? because that is a huge and interesting question. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity to share a bit. I know that we're a bit short on time and there's so much to say about these topics. I mean, some of what I've been thinking about as I'm listening to everyone discuss is, you know, we're talking about like, what is the motive for creating art and does it have an end point? And if most of the content, it seems, it sounds like would be to generate ad content or advertising, I just sort of wonder, like, I'm sort of rambling, but generative AI, I feel like that touches more into people's identity in very, like, private moments where they're creating, whereas in the past, you know, things like search engines were more task-oriented or limited to things like memory. And so at a broad level, I would say that it would be helpful to not only talk about, talk with other AI ethicists on this, but also to talk to people and really center these technologies at the beginning in people, because I think we often center them on branding or competition and, and in markets. And I think that's where more broadly, I'd be interested to go deeper. Uh, yeah, like I think that's a very it. good point. Sorry, I was just agreeing with what she said. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> uh -huh. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, that was a very well-made point. Um, I, so we're, it's, it's 1035, and in the spirit of um, kind of holding to time, thank you for generously kind of, you know, going over. Cool. I just want to kind of yeah. pull it all together um, very quickly so, with, with the Sika. Um, just last thoughts. Can I, um, okay, can I, can I leave everybody with one last question? I have, a, I have an interesting question to consider, but it's up to you all. Yes, please, go for it. Oh, okay, so... So one of the questions at the core of all of this that I always think about, which is why do we create new art? 
right? Our libraries are full of books. You couldn't read all the books that we've already written as a species if you wanted to. In fact, if all of us sat down, we couldn't read all the books that we've written. You couldn't, you forget about going to museums. If you just try to scroll through the art channels on Instagram, you couldn't do it in your lifetime. We've created so much content as a species. Why is it that we need to create more? And I think at the core of that question is the role of generative AI in the future, because there are lots of answers. None of them are perfectly clear, but we don't have to create art because we don't have art. We have lots of art. We have plenty of art. We have plenty of books. The key question is why do we create more? And then AI just becomes a part of that answer. And that's an interesting question to ponder for the future. There you go. I love that question. I love it. (laughs) Perfect. Yeah, I have my own answer, but uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, like, I'll just say it for me personally, I think it's all about self-expression and the times change. So like, yeah, we have art from before, but now is a different time and we're, <laughs> we're in a, a strange new world. And so documenting that and exploring what it means um, is, is, you know, doing that through art is, is one way, but I'm sure there's lots of answers depending on who you, who you ask. Um, I'm not going to hog the mic anymore. Um, Sean, thank you so much. I love this conversation. I'm going to do a little write-up of it. I feel like I learned so much today. And, uh, yeah, thank you for, for, you know, being our featured guest on the first inaugural space. So, um, Thanks for having me. I hope I can do it again. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, loved it. Rashida, I'll let you, I'll let you wrap it up. Uh, amazing. Uh, well, th- thanks a ton, Sean. Um, this was such a fascinating conversation. Like, I love the uh, the question that you kind of left us with because I, I feel like there's a lot to to ponder and mull um, for us as a, as a species. Uh, but and I also want to like uh, just you know, as Natalia mentioned, this is an experimental space, and we just wanted to see. We're we're kind of curious about these topics, so we wanted to bring a group of like simpatico humans together. Um, I want to thank you all for uh, showing up and listening and asking great questions. Um, You know, Sean, uh, again, thanks once again, thanks for your generosity and time. Uh, We we hope to do this again next week. So stay tuned. Thank you everyone for coming. And thanks, Sean. I love this. Have a great day. Have a yeah, great day. Go I'm just going to do one, sorry, one last plug. Please follow Sean if you haven't already. Um, I, Art by Sean here on Twitter and on Instagram. Um, and uh, yeah, like he, he's definitely sort of like worth a follow. So just wanted to plug Sean. Um, Thanks. Art by Burns. <laughs> Check it out. Lots of art. Art by Burns. Do it. Talk to you later. Bye. All right. Take, awesome. Bye. Thanks. Bye.